Yeah, Keith wasn't here. Uh, good morning, everybody. Uh, I, I wonder if that came through uh, on on Zoom. Our our Zoom meeting that we have on Fridays. One of the uh, attendees, uh, Terry from England, who joins us every Friday. It's midnight when her time, and she uh, joins us. We have a really good uh, interaction and conversation, but. Uh, we were chatting, and she said, "Can I hear the do choir?" And I'm like, "The I'm like the what?" And you guys are now famous. This do choir in England, yeah. It'd be like the next boy band, you know. More like old fart band. <laughs> All right, so that's the do choir, Terry. I hope that came through. If it didn't, let me know. Um, yeah, we might have to have do choir practice. <laughs> uh, there's going to be uh, just a reminder. I've said this before, but on on September 27th through the 29th, that week there won't be any classes. Just in the weekday, uh, we're going to Washington D.C. to do a wedding. For Mr. Joey McCabe will be married. Well, we hope. So, uh, 
So we will, uh, September 27th through the 29th, Tuesday through Thursday, there'll be no classes there. Um, oh yeah, we're going to do a, a few, perhaps this week, a few interim uh, passages that uh, have been of interest to me uh, before we start the Doctrine of Prayer, because I want to do a, a bit more work on it before I begin it. So, um, just so you know, not that I'm sure you're... I, right, I'm sure you'd be like, well, then fine, I'm not coming this week. <laughs> you know, I don't know why I tell people that stuff. It's like, I, th- I, I think you're following me around going, when are we going to start this doctrine? <laughs> like, you really care. Um, so, uh, but a huge milestone, we completed the book of Ephesians on Thursday. And I just quickly looked at when we started it. And I thought we were in Ephesians for two years, roughly. And I was off. We started, our first class on Ephesians was August 16th, 2018. We've been in Ephesians for four years. Yeah, so, if you have it all memorized, you fully know it, I I don't. But anyway, good job, everybody. All right, let's uh, open up in prayer. Let's thank God for... The time we have and our opportunity to be together and hear his word, to be instructed and to fellowship with him and with one another through humility, through reverence, and through great uh, thankfulness uh, to the revealed scripture. And so with that, let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for your word. Thank you for our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who is our eternal Savior. And through his incredible sacrifice, you have brought all who have believed upon him into your life, your eternal life. You have blessed us with it. You have imputed us with righteousness so that the the, the barriers between us and you have been removed through Jesus Christ. Through his incredible sacrifice, Father, and your love, we are blessed beyond what we know. And so, Father, we ask that through your spirit this morning and and continuing throughout this day that you would impress upon our hearts the truth of things and the truth and reality of our relationship with you. We ask, Father, this in Christ's name. Amen. All rise, please. Oh. 
Uh, we are going. To, our main passage is John six. Let's go to John, chapter six. The uh, there's a couple of main uh, thoughts or themes in this passage. Uh, the main theme is being satisfied with God and nothing else. And it's a broad theme. It's uh, you know there and you know that, that's a very uh, large subject, of course. But um, the, this passage is where Christ feeds the five thousand. Uh, the people then follow him uh, because they don't find him the next day. They come to see him again the next day, uh, likely for more stuff, and they uh, they don't find him. So they hop in their boats. They cross. They realized that the disciples had crossed the sea, the Sea of Galilee, so they followed them. And Jesus says to them, You're, you have followed me because you want bread. And then he says, I'm going to give you bread that is eternal life. And they think he's still talking about physical bread. Uh, and, and what he's going to convey to them is that they're... They want him to be king. They want free food. They want a lot. <laughs> it's human condition. Right? They they want what they want. And it's not that Jesus the, the Lord isn't going to say to them, "Get rid of all your wants." Well, we wouldn't be human anymore. He says, "I'm going to fulfill your wants, but not in the way that you think." What I'm going to do is give you bread from heaven. What I'm going to do is give you life from heaven. And that's God's life. So what he's going to do by dying on our, as our substitute is provide us the life that is the Trinity. And the Trinity is a life of fellowship. Right? Because there's three persons. The Trinity is a life of love. A life of occupation with another. Could you imagine at any point in all of eternity where the Father's not occupied with the Son and the Son's not occupied with the Father? Like, could you imagine the Son saying, you know what, Father, I need some time away from you. We've been together for a long time. (laughs) You know, can we split up for a little while and go our own separate ways and be alone? No. And hence, and we've discussed this uh, when we found out many years ago. You know, I was brought up Catholic, so I didn't know hardly anything in the Bible. But that's not a dump on Catholics, by the way. But it's uh, it, when I found out. You know, the, we're part of the body of Christ, and the body of Christ is going to be together forever. And I, we would talk to each other and be like, "So we're going to be stuck with each other forever, like forever?" <clears throat> and I went, "Why really? Does it sound like heaven to you?" Well, we're going to be perfect and perfectly united, like the Trinity has always been. The Trinity has invited us into their life, their love, their peace, their joy, which is eternal. They have enjoyed one another for all of eternity. This is clarified for me, you know, why is the Holy Spirit praying for us and why is the Son praying for us when the Father is 
omniscient and he knows everything we need anyway. Why is he just is he waiting for Jesus to ask him on our behalf? And then he says, Oh Jesus, I didn't know that. So yeah, now I'll do that. They have been communicating with each other by words, because God speaks. They've been communicating with each other forever. And why wouldn't they communicate with one another about us? And of course, therefore, they would intercede on our behalf. And as Jesus is at the right hand of God praying for us, and the Holy Spirit intercedes for us always. And, you know, that's a pretty good team to be on. We're, and we're there. Every believer is there. We're not, when I say invited, the whole human race is invited into this relationship. If you've accepted Christ as your Savior, then you're in it. You're in it. It's yours. So what Jesus is going to clarify for us here, because this, this passage is, and he's speaking to unbelievers. There's a lot of unbelievers in this crowd. In John 6. But the message is a constant reminder to us because we are so easily distracted by things that are not really an essential part of the life of the Trinity. Alright, like, so who gets elected? What, you know, how are the midterms going to go? It's not a big deal with the Trinity. I don't think God's up there chewing his nails wondering if the house is going to flip. Um, and, and, you know, stuff like that. And we could get very, not that we shouldn't be interested in it, sure, absolutely, but to be occupied with it to the point where it robs us of life and peace, the, the, the life that we should have, then, uh, you know, we're holding on too tight to things that are not that important. There's primary things, there's secondary things, and then there's a lot of tertiary things. Tertiary means, you know, fourth, fifth level. And they need to stay there. So it's not that we can't enjoy things that are on the fifth and sixth level of priority, but when we start moving the things that are on level five up to level two and one, uh, we, we really mess up life. Uh, so on this, uh, Marcus Dodds writes a terrific commentary on the Gospel of John. Uh, and I'll quote him here at the start. He says, We must beware then of looking with repugnance on what Christ calls us to, as if it were a superfluity that may reasonably be postponed to more urgent and essential demands. We mu- uh, again, we must beware then of looking with repugnant, repugnance on what Christ calls us to, as if it were a superfluity. Like, uh, superfluity means uh, superfluous. That may reasonably be postponed to more urgent and essential demands. What Christ calls us to is not a priority. There's other things that I've got to get done first. That's what he's saying. Uh, of as if he were introducing our nature to some region for which it was not originally intended. The and exciting within us spurious and fanciful desires which are really alien to us as human beings. So what Dodds is saying here uh, very nicely is, uh, you know, is God asking us to do stuff that's alien to our nature? And a lot of people would say, well, yeah, you know, I'm a sinner, and I'm not designed for holy living. 
And, and so, and that's the point he's bringing up. Is, is this alien to us as human beings? So he says this is a common thought. It is a common thought that religion is not an essential but a luxury. But in point of fact, all that Christ calls us to, perfect reconcilement with God, devoted service to his will, purity of character, these are all essentials for us so that until we attain them, we have not begun to live, but are merely nibbling at the very gate of life. Uh, His imagery is great, but Dodds is a good writer. Um, You know... Are we nibbling at the gate of life as kind of strolling around in front of it? Or have we walked through? Or are we going to walk through? And, we're, and you know, this is also going to be what, what Christ is going to show us here, is that there are at times where at the gate of life, I'm passed out on my face in front of it. <laughs> and what I mean by that is that I'm having a hard time, a real hard time. All the time, not all the time, but sometimes my, my sinfulness, my temptation, my heartaches, my weaknesses, uh, my bad decisions, uh, a momentous bad decision. You know, bad decisions can build on each other and then they pile up and you're stuck in a mire of, of waste and wickedness and I just can't seem to pick myself up and live this life, not today. And God says, I've got you. So, like, Jesus is going to feed 5,000. Is he going to feed them every day? They hope so. But no. But where they are when he feeds them is a wasteland. Somewhere around the Sea of Galilee where there's nothing for them to eat. There's nothing there. They can't go, like, picking heads of grain or picking grapes or olives somewhere. There's no groves. There's no vineyards. There's nothing. And they're hungry, and he has compassion on them, and he feeds them. And it's like it's a a beautiful picture of us when at times we find, and all of us are going to do this because we're weak, we're sinful, and we make bad decisions, that we're going to find ourselves in a wasteland with nothing to eat, and God is going to say, I got you. I'm going to do my miracle and feed you. Um, You're that lost sheep. I'm going to go get you. You're the prodigal son. I'm going to bring you home. But if we're doing that every day, then then there's an issue. What these people, we're not to be, um, we're not to be at that weakness all the time. Right? We are to be strong. Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Ephesians 6.10 As we studied, the armor of God. Pick it up and put it on. Stand firm against the schemes of the devil. Don't be weak. But at times we are. In the most dutiful, uh, wise, powerful, dedicated Christian is going to have days where he falls flat on his face. There's not one Old Testament saint who hasn't done it that we can go read about. Except for like Daniel, right? You can't go, don't go looking for weakness in Daniel. But you can go, you go look at uh, in others. Like, I mean, like Moses, especially David, strong, strong men of God. And women of God who have failed. 
And those are the days where the bread's going to come as a miracle. But then when God strengthens you by His grace and His mercy and His forgiveness and He strengthens you, He's going to say, now, don't sit here continuing to be weak. Now that I've strengthened you with my grace, pick yourself up and let's move. And so we have both. We have both the call to be living this life, as Dodd says here, not nibbling at the gate of life, but running through it. But at times, we are just completely helpless. And Jesus is going to, or God, God the Trinity is going to give to us very graciously. So continuing with Dodds here, he says, God in inviting us to these things, this eternal life, is not putting a strain on our nature it can never bear. He is proposing to impart new strength and joy to our nature. He is not summoning us to a joy that is too high for us and that we can never rejoice in, but is recalling us to that condition in which alone we can live with comfort and health and in which alone we can permanently delight. If we cannot now desire what Christ offers, if we have no appetite for it, if all that he speaks of seems uninviting and dreary, then this is a symptomatic then this is symptomatic of a fatal loss of appetite on our part. And that's just so well put. So, yeah, and he, he's borrowing this right from Jesus' words. Thirst and hunger for righteousness, and you will be satisfied. Where's our appetite? You know, do we have an appetite for it? And that's what Dodds brings out there really well. And, and you know, like, uh, if you don't have an appetite for it, particularly right now, then you should be honest with yourself. It's You have to know that. We can go through years and years of having no appetite for the life of Christ and and you know, not even know it because we're so distracted with so many things. And uh, to know it is to be empowered to say, look, how can this change? Can I gain this appetite and become full? Because that's what when Christ said, you'll be satisfied. That word means to be full. And here in John 6, he's feeding. And then he tells them, look, if you eat the bread that I'm going to give you, the bread of life from heaven, you'll never hunger again. And they're like, well, that bread sounds magical. How do we get that bread? And he makes a piece as clear to them. Believe in me. It's not a material bread. It's something else entirely. But it will satisfy and fill the inner self. And and therefore, um, you know, and 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 he gives us an appetite for it, and we can so easily lose that appetite. We can lose it in a day. I know this by experience. We get distracted with whatever. We start making decisions wherever that are are poor, and we start to get our eyes off of that which is important, and our appetite changes for things that do not satisfy. We know that. And as much as we've known this for a long time, we're still easily duped into it. What does that make of us? Weak little sheep 
So at times, we're going to be like, God help. I blew it again. I did it again. I know, I, I should, I know better. I'm here, here I am again. On my knees before you, weak, lost, helpless, stupid. And God says, well, I'm going to feed you. I'm going to um, uh, heal your wounds. I'm going. To, I'm thinking imagery of the the, the, whole, uh, the Old Testament prophets. I'm going to bandage your wounds, put oil on your wounds, as they would do. They'd put olive oil on the wounds and soften them. I will give you water. I will give you food. I will give you comfort. I will care for you. And then I'm going to strengthen you. But when I strengthen you, I want you to walk. I don't want you to sit here in your weakness, wallowing in your weakness. Understand your weakness. He says it in Hebrews chapter 4. I sympathize with your weakness. But once I strengthen you, I want you to walk. And, uh, and, then, and we'll find out if, if this life that he has given us is an inner life of fulfillment, and it is, and it's not just like eating, but it's an inner life of fulfillment made up of things like love, joy, and peace, then we cannot be those who watch life like a movie. We have to be involved. And hence, when Jesus feeds them, the 5,000, they want bread the next day. And, and I'm sure the next day and the next day and the next. It's an agricultural economy. It's hard work making bread. It's not like running, you know, running to Safeway and grabbing a loaf. It's, you know, you've got to grow it. You've got to thresh it. You've got to winnow it, the grain, and then you've got to grind it. And you've got to, you know, uh, make bread. It's hard work. Uh, fishing is hard work. And in their minds, they say, well, if this is the Messiah, and he's just going to give Israel bread every day, and our enemies, the nations around us, are going to have to work for sustenance, and yet we won't have to. We'll be so strong and free. And you know, would they? You know, it's, it's actually the promise of socialism, isn't it? That you've got a king who's just going to give you what you want and, and you don't have to do any work. Uh, actually, at, um, at reading about uh, uh, the Plymouth Plantation, when the pilgrims first came over, the, their leader was Bradford, William Bradford. And Bradford's idea, being a devout Christian Puritan, was for everybody to hold in common their land and everybody to hold in common the work and everybody to hold in common the goods that were produced. And it sounded like a great idea. And it didn't work. And it cost people's lives. People died because things weren't produced. So some people showed up for work on time. Other people did not. The people who showed up on time started to resent the people who were late. And the people who were late expected to get just as much as the others. And it turned out that people didn't work so hard. And so the production was low. 
So Bradford said, well, we're going to have to divide up the land and give everybody their own plots that they own, and that if they make extra, they can sell and trade. And lo and behold, the production was good. And that's because we're a fallen race. And we need to work. So uh, God is not going to tell us here, look, sit back and watch life go by. He's going to tell us, you live and love and work and serve and risk like I do. God is going to tell us, has told us, or will tell us in this passage, that you have to get involved in this very life. You have to do it. You're not going to understand what love is at all unless you actually love. You're not going to understand what strength is at all unless you actually take the steps to be strong. And that you actually not going to know what wisdom is unless you attain wisdom. You have to just watch this go by. We're to be involved and to do. So this is something more than just having the Trinity, all right? So this um, we have the Trinity, but all believers have the Trinity. All believers have the Trinity, and we're so grateful for that. That is the grace of God. Every single believer, we don't work for salvation. We don't work for righteousness. We don't work for our position with God. It is a grace gift. Every one of us has it who has believed in Christ as our Savior. That's the mercy of God. That's the love of God, and it's truth. But this is being satisfied or full because you have the Trinity. Not just having them, but being satiated. Meaning satisfied. Which means happy. Uh, So for this we have to enter into the life of God in thinking and in practice. Hence it is an application of faith to the astounding reality that God came into our world as a man and that he gave himself for us and showed us what this life was. And he modeled it. He lived it. And he went through everything. As that same passage in Hebrews 4 says that he was tempted in all things, yet without sin, but tempted in all things as we are. And he came, on, he came into this world as uh, a man for the purpose of giving us this life, the life of the Trinity, but it doesn't make us gods, right? We don't become God. And that may, it makes perfect sense because this is the life of the Trinity in a human being. Jesus Christ is a 100% true blue human being. And God. In one person forever. So, God is the only one who can satisfy the soul of man. Man's ignorance of this leads him to try other ways, which, of course, we know. Uh, this, it's, in, it's incredibly important to be reminded of this because it's so easy to uh, come upon us uh, and to get distracted with things that, again, they need to be taken care of, but don't let the tertiary stuff become the primary stuff. I mean, there are things we have to do and take care of, but they're not near as important as the condition of our souls in relation to God. Now, this um, this passage. Let's see. Uh, look at John six ten. Uh, 
Jesus, and Jesus said, have the people sit down. Now, there was much grass in that place. I assume John is telling us this to paint the picture, that at least it was comfortable. Uh, but they're not animals, right? If there's plenty of grass, that's good for, like, cows, but it's not, not much good for humans. Uh, so I have the people sit down. So the men sat down in number about 5,000. That's the men. There's probably quite a bit more. There might even be up to like 10,000 people here. And Jesus, therefore, took the loaves, and having given thanks, he distributed to those who were seated, likewise also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they were filled, he said to his disciples, Gather up the leftover fragments, that nothing may be lost. And so they gathered them up and filled twelve baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves which were left over by those who had eaten. When therefore the people saw the sign of which he performed, they said, This is the truth this is of a truth the prophet who is come into the world. Uh, so we'll clarify that in a second. But first we should recognize these are not like bits and pieces of bread and fish that the people threw out and Jesus told them to go clean it up. This is the extra. Right? And the extra uh, keep the baskets full. And, and he's going to repeat this to them when they're uh, there's coming up. They're going to be crossing the sea again and they're going to realize that they forgot to bring bread. My disciples. And they're going to be whispering to each other in the boat, saying, did you bring the bread? I didn't bring the bread. Did you bring the bread? Nobody has any, nobody has any bread. And Jesus is going to know what they're talking about. And he was like, did you just see me feed 5,000 people with bread? And you're discussing what now? Men of little faith. And that's when he tells them, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. Beware of this... Um, you thinking that life is a material thing and that... That it depends upon your work, and it depend it depends upon God, it depends upon Him. It's our, but it's not that we don't do anything. It's that we completely depend upon Him, and that's what's here. The baskets are never empty. You know, I say, well, God, you know, how much can you give to me? The baskets are never empty, never. But we're, you know, we're we're to get what we need. And that's what they got. When the people were full, they were, they were, it was good. Uh, we may want more, but God has promised to give us what we need and that we will get. Now, in verse 14, they have this, you know, the light bulb goes on. This one, who they followed him because he was performing miracles, you can see that in verse 1, that this, they say here at the end, this is of a truth, the prophet who has come into the world. And it turns out that the rabbis had theorized at this time, they had theorized it for years, that when the Messiah came, he was going to bring back the miracle of manna. So the rabbis were under this impression, and this is their proof text in Psalm 72. Verse 7 I put in there just so you can see it's messianic. In his days... May the righteous flourish. And this psalm is about the Messiah. It's obvious about the Messiah. And it's actually, the title is a psalm, of, a psalm of Solomon. And it's very likely that Solomon wrote this. We're pretty sure that Solomon wrote this psalm. And he, Solomon is writing about the Messiah to come. And then in verse 16, concerning the Messiah, May there be abundance of grain in the earth on top of the mountains. They interpreted this to mean that the manna miracle from the Exodus in the wilderness would come back. 
with the Messiah. And of course, Jesus knew this belief. And he's going to say, yes, there is bread from heaven, but it's not what you think it is. So notice verse uh, 15. Jesus, therefore, perceiving that they were intending to come and take him by force to make him king, withdrew again to the mountain by himself alone. And he understood this. They're going to make him king. Now, he is the king. But is that all he is? Right, so they're going, to, they're going to, everything that they want Jesus to be to them, he is. And But yet, he's going to, in a way, he's going to take them by the hand and lead them past. Am I the one who's going to supply all your needs? Yes. Uh, but we're going to pass that for now. Like take someone take he's going to take them by the hand and lead them somewhere. And am I the one who's going to be your king forever? Yes, but we're going to go past that for now. And I'm going to take you to the place where you know, here's the water for you to drink. Either you can drink it or you can reject it. And what I mean is that through me and me alone will you have life. Whether I can be king of a nation, supply bread, supply fish, supply water, supply whatever. If I'm not, if you're not a saved, delivered person who is in union with me forever, righteous and holy, then you have no part with me. And that's where he's going to lead them to. And for that, he has to be something more than a great king. He has to be something more than a miracle worker. There are plenty of prophets in the Old Testament who did similar miracles, even raising people from the dead. Both Elijah and Elisha rose people from the dead. Uh, He's got to be more than a miracle worker. He's got to be more than a good king, even a great king. He's got to be something else entirely. Uh, There's an excellent book. Someone just sent it to me. I just started reading it by Lawrence Reed. It's called Was Jesus a Socialist? It's a... And it's a fun read. Uh, if you are interested in that kind of thing, I highly recommend it. Um, and, and that's because in our world, it's claimed that Jesus was, by socialists, of course, <laughs> claim that Jesus was a socialist. And socialism means that you know the government gives you what you should eat and what you should wear and what you should do. And you have no other choices. You know, so you lose your freedom and the promises of security. Uh, in the history of the world, this has never worked really well. Uh, that's, a, that's ironic. That I'm, that's satirical, as I'm saying. Not, not only has it not worked, it's, it's ended up in the death and murder of tens of millions of people. And, and so the socialists of our age say, well, yeah, we understood. Soviet Union didn't do it all that well. Neither did China. Neither did Cuba. And, but, but they haven't done it right yet. And we, so we say, well, what is right? Was Jesus a socialist? No. But perhaps we don't ever have to work again. There's no need to till the soil to grow grain anymore. There's no need to maintain boats and nets and spend endless hours fishing. There's no need to dig wells for backbreaking work, to dig wells to get water, or to grow vineyards to make wine. Jesus will just conjure up water, wine, bread, fish. And just give it to us. But it's obvious that this isn't the case because he didn't do it every day. 
He did it on this day. There was another day where he fed 4,000. So, right, he did it more than once, but he didn't do it every day. What about tomorrow? God will provide our needs, but it doesn't mean that we are, and this is my point here this morning, that we're not to invest in the harvest. There are going to be days when we can't do anything. We should do something. But because of dumb decisions or sin or weakness or lust or what have you, we have failed miserably. Am I condoning that? Oh, God, no. Heck no. The Bible never does. God doesn't. God hates sin. We should never do it. We should shoot for a perfect game every day. But it ain't going to happen. And some days are going to be terrible. We find this group of people with nothing. There's nothing there to eat. There's a lot of nice grass, but that's not going to do them any good. Uh, and God is going to provide. So I can, I can trust in that. See, because if, I, if I've got to shoot a perfect game, doesn't, isn't that kind of scary? Right now, I think about it. Every football team, when they go out on the... Well, not every football team, but if you're a good football team, when you go out on the field, do you say, well, all right, we're only going to have ten penalties today. Or we're only going to have two turnovers today. No, you say no penalties, no turnovers. We're going to do it perfect. We're going to execute perfectly. Uh, we know that we're not going to, though. But we're going to go for it. Well, that's a football game. You know, football game's over in a couple hours. What about life? Be perfect as your Father in Heaven is perfect. Love one another as I have loved you. You do and live what I do and live. And I just like God said, I'm not made for that. I'm not made for that. You can't ask me to do that. And if you ask me to do that, I'd rather just throw in the towel. Like, let's just get it over with now because I can't do it. And then God says, look, you can do it because I've empowered you to do it. I've done miracles that you can't possibly imagine. To you and through my Son, I have done these for you. We have, the Trinity, have worked so that we can put you in our lives. But know this. If you break off and run like a prodigal, I will accept you home without guilt or condemnation. I'll tell you things like there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I'll tell you things that my, like my apostle, my servant, the apostle Paul, oh wicked man that I am. But who will redeem me from the body of this flesh? Thank God for Jesus Christ, his son. There are going to be days where you are useless at this. And I will bear you up. I will not condemn you. Your sins have been cast as far as the east is from the west. The new covenant, which is repeated in Hebrews 8. Your sins and iniquities I remember no more. That certificate of debt that consists of decrees that are your sins against me, I took them away by nailing them to the cross. Be of good cheer. I'm going to ask you to do this perfectly, but have the courage to go for it. Uh, but at the same time, do not condone sin or condone failure. Because the, the in, in these things that are 
of truths. I, I, I've heard uh, somebody wrote very uh, comically, I read re- recently, and said, you know, a lot of people who are talking about either philosophy or religion think that life is like Harry Potter. And Harry Potter, you have good witches, you have bad witches, and there's kind of like nothing in between, right? You got the good, you got the bad, they fight it out, Harry wins, Voldemort is vanquished, and life goes on, I guess. But uh, it's not that simple, is it? You know, there's, there's good and there's bad, and in our minds, we're, you know, we're discerning, okay, how many bad days should I have? We just talked about having bad days. How many bad days should I have? Ten percent? Well, I have to have one. You know, we shoot for zero, absolutely. But I better have at least one, or there's something wrong with me. There is something wrong with me. That's why I have one. At least. Ten? You know, I say, well, I had a good year. I only went into into rehab twice. You know, I I don't know. (laughs) You know, I only went to jail once this year. And maybe that is a good year for you because that, that's another thing that we cannot discern is I don't know what it's like to live your life. You don't know what it's like to live mine. I don't have your DNA. You don't have mine. I don't have your background. You don't have mine. I don't have your weaknesses. Maybe we share some in common, but they're not the same. So what's strong for you and what's strong for me? What does it look like? We don't really know. And so what we do is a tendency. So the, it's the, the, the understanding of the truth is somewhere in the middle. And the pendulum will swing all the way to one end and we'll say, hey, look, this is what Paul had to address in Romans 6. Shall we continue in sin so that grace may increase? They're like, look, I am a sinner. I'm a loser. I just basically confess and rebound. That's my spiritual life. So I'm, I'm all the way on that end. And thank God for the grace of God because that's how I live. I live in immoral, I'm a Corinthian. I love forgiveness, I love eternal life, which the Corinthians knew they had. Paul writes to them as saints. He doesn't deny that they are the temple of God. He does not deny that they're believers. But all that holiness and righteousness stuff, self-control, yawn. I mean, seriously, that just sounds terrible. And they weren't into that. And so the pendulum for them went one way. And then you get the Galatian church. It's, an, it's not a coincidence that we have these churches to, to read about. They went back to the Mosaic Law. So they went. the pendulum for them swung the other way. And they said, well, you know, holiness is, is hard for all of us. So in the, in the uh, Galatian church, holiness for us is going to be keeping the law. Like rituals and sacrifices and stuff like that. They're pretty easy. They're definitely easier than living. And we've got to be careful. You know, it's somewhere here in the middle that I am dedicated and diligent to being the person that God has made me to be. Christ-like. But I'm also understanding in, in myself and in others that at times I'm going to be weak and fail and sin. And thank God for the grace of God. And I'm going to try and keep that to as much of a minimum as possible. And as I grow in grace and knowledge, I'll be able to I'll have more ability to do that, more strength to do that. 
All right, so uh, we'll, God will provide our needs, always. But if we're not invested in the harvest, here's the thing, we can't just watch life go by. You know, I read about the love of God. That's me just kind of watching it, which I have to do. I have to know what it is. I read about the love of God. I read about the virtues of God. But do I live them? And that's what Jesus is going to teach us here, is that I'm not going to give you bread every day. I'm not going to give you, I'm not going to make this miracle every day. You have got to get in the fields and sow and you know plant and sow, reap. You've got to do all that back-breaking work. And the Christian life is a bunch of work we've got to do. And learning, and diligence, and applying, fighting off the temptation, standing firm against schemes of the devil, putting on the armor of God, day in and day out, praying. And, uh, but I've got to do those things. And this is what God has invited us to do. He has invited us to become uh, participants in this life. Uh, go to Matthew chapter 9. And we'll come back to John 6. Matthew 9. So, you know, one of the things I thought of here is um, witnessing. Now, we're called a witness uh, of the we are the lights of the world, Jesus said. Let your light shine before men. And but isn't it true that uh, you know the saved are known by God before the foundation of the world? He already knows them all, doesn't he? So I mean, if you're on the, on the Calvinistic scale, if you're like a hyper-Calvinist, you don't witness to anybody because they're already picked. What's the point? If you're a strict Calvinist, you witness... But you don't tell anybody that Christ died for them. You don't tell everybody that because you believe in a limited atonement. So you could be talking to somebody who, in your estimation, Christ has not died for. And then, you know, and the pendulum swings all the way over to the other side where it's all free will and no predestination. And as we know, it's somewhere in between where people have to believe in Christ as their Savior from a free will decision in time. And if they don't hear the gospel, and there's no one to bring the gospel, what are they going to believe in? This is how God has designed it. But we, so what about, you know, we say, well, you know, God, God has already picked the winners and losers. If I'm a strict Calvinist, why should I witness? But So here's Jesus uh, in Matthew 9.35. And Jesus was going about all the cities and the villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. And seeing the multitudes, he felt compassion for them because they were distressed and downcast like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to the disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Therefore, beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest harvest and so this has many similar words to uh here in mark's account of the feeding of the five thousand. notice what how mark puts it he saw a great multitude 
and he felt compassion for them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. They're sheep without a shepherd. He's not so concerned the fact that they're hungry, and they are. But what is what is the shepherd? Is the Lord is their shepherd? What are, where is he taking them? You know, the shepherd protects and leads the sheep and brings them to where they can drink and eat. So, therefore, you know, what is our great shepherd? What is he desiring for us to eat? And it's far more than physical food. Although that will be provided, as he says. The uh, And yet, this shepherd says, look, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. So, you know, the witnessing is not just on him. He's looking for workers. So, well, that doesn't, you know, if we think about it, that doesn't make any sense. God is depending upon me to go witness to somebody, and that person's not going to get saved unless I go witness to them. That makes no sense at all. That would make salvation depend upon me. That would be a bad thing. Uh, and so, no, it's not that. But yet, the Lord is recruited, trained, and sent out workers, a lot of them, of which we are to be, all of us are to be in the church. Let your light shine before men. You see, in, a, in, in eternal life, to experience it and to be fulfilled, we've got to be involved in it. You know, we can't just sit back and w- wait for the miracle. Wait for the bread. On some days, yeah, we got to wait for the bread because we're, we're having a bad day. And we depend upon the grace of God completely there. But we've got to be involved in the process, involved in the life. Uh, so God did not design us to sit on our cushions I, t- uh, I not too long ago Maggie fell and she landed on her on her derriere and I was like, well, you're lucky you didn't land on your head. You landed on the cushion that God gave you, and now she calls it her cushion. So <laughs> you have to be careful what you tell kids. God did not design us to sit on our cushions and watch life like a movie. And um, interestingly to me, our technology with the internet and our little smartphones and our computers, have made this far easier and more entertaining to do. To just watch it like it's a movie. It's not. And I love movies. I'm a movie nut. I love them. I love books. I love good stories. But, you know, we, we can become watchers of our lives and even in that watching of our lives, imagine the heroes that we are. Wow, aren't I something? And you've not actually done anything. Yeah, you know, have you have you have you done? Have you witnessed? Have you loved your neighbor? Have you submitted to the authority? Have you have you sacrificed? Have you given? Have have you to that person who doesn't deserve? Who's your enemy? Have you loved them and done good to them and prayed for them like the Lord commanded us? Have you have we done these things consistently, or have we read about them and imagined them and done none of them? 
Jesus is not going to feed the 5,000 every day. He feeds them one day, and later on he'll feed them on another day. But all every other day, they've got to go back into the fields and they've got to work. Or they'll starve. He didn't heal everybody. He healed some. But right in those, and I, I thought about this while we were singing, that this healing, right, he heals lepers, blind, deaf, raises the dead. These are all depictions of us. We're deaf, dumb, and blind. Every one of us. And at times we are incredibly dumb. <laughs> yeah, I'll say that as we can't speak, you know, but uh, you know, at times we're incredibly blind. And God is going to do things in our lives that we don't deserve, that we didn't, and we're not doing well spiritually, currently, whatever it is, for that day or that week. And God is going to do something for us that we don't deserve that opens our eyes to His grace. And He's going to say, do you see who I am? I'm calling you to do perfect. I'm calling you to be virtuous. I've called you and in, 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 in invested my entire life, the life of Christ, to bring you into this place. But you have got to understand how gracious I am and how much I love you and how much I'm for you. And don't, get, don't let the pendulum swing to the other side where you think all of a sudden the Christian life all depends upon your great performance. We are all to be great performers in the Christian life. If we don't, there's something wrong. But there's also a great grace upon us for when we're not doing so well. And, then, and God's going to do this over and over. And He's going to reveal to you, look at me. Not you, not your friends, not your spouse, not your wealth, nothing material. Forget about that. Look at me. Look in light, right into my eyes. And see me. See my glory. And then you'll see. And then you'll want to be involved in that life. It makes all the difference in the world. To actually love to be involved in it, to love to be a part of it. There's a, I, we all go through the stage of, I ought to be a part of it. I ought to be, meaning Christ-like. I, I ought to be spiritual. I ought to be filled with the Spirit. I ought to be wise. I ought to be gracious and loving and so on. And, and I'm, you know, I'm fighting with myself, my own temptations, my own flesh. It doesn't want anything to do with it. And there's a process by which we come to know and see God for who he is. And that you're, this is why growth is so important, that in that growth you're coming to see what it really is. And when you see it for what it really is, it's like, like this. Like I said, we're invited into the life of the Trinity. If you see the life of the Trinity, you're seeing heaven itself. Do you think that's boring? Do I think that that's like, oh, heaven, yeah, I saw it. Eh. I've seen better. <laughs> like, what? Of course not. So the Trinity has invited mankind into their life and their fellowship. It is a life of joy, peace, kindness, strength, Goodness, 
faithfulness, and all perfectly and eternally. Material things are far, far down the list from here. They're necessary. We need them to live. But material things are tertiary. I wouldn't even put material as secondary. But they're necessary. But since life, this life of God is an inner thing, then we have to be involved. We have to be players and not watchers. We have to do both, actually. We have to see it. We have to see it as we read it in the Word. We see it modeled by Paul and Jesus and John and Peter. We see this, the Old Testament saints. We see it modeled, but we have to do it. So as James puts it in James 1.22, prove yourself doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. The hearers are the watchers. They're just watching it go by like a movie. But in that epistle, amazingly, it comes out in chapter 4 of James that the people that James are writing to are awful. They're awful people. And he's writing, he's, he calls them Christians. They're believers. They're believers who are immoral, selfish, lustful. They have incredible uh, lust for wealth. And they're selfish. And they're believers. And as James is writing to them, they've missed it entirely. They were watchers. They were hearers of the word. They heard it all. Like, yeah, 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 I get it, I get it, I hear it. But when it came to practice, they were selfish people. All right, so Jesus then, and I've been I'm running out of time here. Uh, go back to John 6. We'll just set this up for uh, Tuesday. So here Jesus is going to walk across the water. And you know, in the writing here, that we, we can't really say for sure, but it, it looks like Jesus wants them to follow him. Because, you know, why did he walk across the water? Well, I don't know. I guess we'd have to ask him. But um, he, you know, he's taken a boat every other time. But this particular night, and it's at night, he decides he's going to walk across the surface of the water. And they're going to they're gonna know that Jesus is no longer there because he leaves a boat behind. So when they all come the next morning, they recognize that the disciples have crossed in their boat, but for whatever reason, I, I tried to reason it out in my mind, I couldn't really wrap my head around it, but it says in the text that they knew that Jesus was no longer there, but that the boat was there. So... He, where did he go? And they don't know where he went. They know the disciples got in their boat. So and in right fashion, the disciples would have gone across the sea to the other side, which was Capernaum. And uh, so, it's like, you know, Jesus leaves a clue. I'm no longer here. And uh, they, but so, you know, they could have been like, well, Jesus is gone. Let's go back about our lives. But no, you know, he fed us yesterday with a miracle. We need to go find him. Plus, we want to make him king, right? So we need to go find him. So Jesus leaves like a couple of breadcrumbs. 
that's a good pun. He leaves a couple of breadcrumbs. There probably were quite a few. And, and, and they, go want, they go find him. And like, doesn't he, he does this for the whole human race. Not that, not that we, you know, he comes to us. I understand that theologically. God comes to us. We don't seek for God. God seeks for us. But in, in, let's just put it in the context of, of for us as believers, like these, these clues are left to us that cause us to want to go see. What is this about? In whatever doctrine or truth that you're learning, or whatever aspect of life that you need to apply those truths to, and, and your, you know, it, there's a there's a curiosity in you about how it all works and how that truth really bears out in in you in your own soul. You know, how does that truth apply to me? How does it change me? And you know, and there's these clues are left to us, and we go follow. So look at John six twenty five. And when they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you get here? If he didn't take a boat, then he would have had to walk around, and that would have taken a lot longer. The Sea of Galilee is pretty big. It would have taken him a few days to go around on foot. And, you know, Jesus here doesn't say, well, I walked on the water. How would you get here? You know, he, he doesn't do that. Uh he, but then, as in his usual fashion, he gets right to the heart of the matter. Where did you? How did you get here? When did you get here? And he says to them in verse 26, Truly, truly, amen, amen. It's a very common, I say to you, lego who mean. I've, I've, in Greek class, I've seen this phrase now about a dozen times. It's, he's, it's used, he uses it all the time. Amen, amen, lego, lego, I say to you. You seek me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate loaves and were filled. Do not work for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man shall give to you. For on him the Father, even God, has set his seal. And so, um, notice the, the contrast. He says, work, don't work for the food which perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life. So am I working for this food that endures to eternal life? He uses the word work. But then he also says, I'm going to give it to you. So which is it? And it's absolutely both. It's just that we don't do the work. Now, the, the work here, our faith is in the one who does the work. And he's the one who does it, not us. He will make this clear. But he also, uh, you know, he starts them off with, you know, how did you get here, Rabbi? And he basically responds to them, what are you looking for? So I left you the breadcrumbs, right? I showed you that I could feed you. But I also showed you that I'm not going to feed you every day. Not like that. I showed you that when you're weak, I will support you. But I will also, when I make you strong, I want you to walk strong. And then I left you, and I bid you to follow me. And they did. And then he says, what are you here to see? And he, you know, doesn't this, it, instead of just telling us everything, he 
goads us and he draws us in. Right? And this involves me. If he's going to ask me a question that I have to answer rather than just, you know, spelling it out and just saying, look, here's, I'm going to die for your sins. You believe in me and blah, blah, blah. I'm going to. So he draws us in and he bids us to answer the questions. And, the, and these kinds of questions are very personal ones. What are you here to see? What do you want? And you know, before God Almighty, for him to ask that question, I have you know, I I can't lie to him. What do I want? And it becomes very deeply personal and therefore very deeply life changing. But uh, right there, of course, we can pause there. Um, it doesn't wrap it up as much as I would like. It kind of leaves it as as hanging there. But I'm out of time, so sorry about that. <laughs> Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for your word. Thank you that you uh, have given us this life. Thank you that through this life that we have the uh, opportunity, and not just opportunity, but your bidding and goading and inviting for us to be a part of it, to live this life, and therefore to become completely involved in it, involved in your love, involved in prayer, involved in your uh, your graciousness and your sacrifice and all that you do, all that you do, and you have called us to do. May we see it, Father, and perform it. And when we have those times of great weakness, we, may we, without self-condemnation, depend upon your grace and forgiveness. And then when you strengthen us by that grace and your love, that we may again walk strong. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, well, we'll take our offering this morning, and that'll do it. Let's uh, pray for our offering. We thank you, Father, for the opportunity to give. As your believer priests, we worship you in giving. We give uh, the graciousness of our hearts, and we thank you, Father, for the opportunity. May these finances be used to your glory and that alone. In Christ's name, amen. close of prayer. Thank you, Father, for our gathering. Thank you for the uh, royal family of God and our deliverance through Jesus Christ our Lord. And anyone who is listening who has not come to believe in Christ as their Savior, I beg you to please consider who is the Lord Jesus Christ and who is the Savior of the world. It is Him and Him alone. And in Him and Him alone is eternal life. 
we cannot have a life with God as sinners. We have to have our sins paid for. There is no way that we could do it. All of us are sinners. And none of us could pay the penalty. But Jesus Christ, God, who is a man, uh, in His perfection and sinlessness, took our place on the cross and was judged for all of our sins. That's all your sins were judged by Jesus Christ, or through Jesus Christ. And therefore, salvation is a door open to you that you can walk through. But you have to choose to. You will not be forced, and it's not by works, but to believe. The Scripture is clear. Jesus said it. The apostles said it. It's all throughout the Old Testament that it is faith in Christ and faith alone that saves. So believe upon Him as your Lord and Savior. He is the one who died for you. Believe in Him and you will be saved. Again, Father, thank You and thank You for all You do. In Christ's name, Amen.